welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. We're in a series called Garden Church. We're defining the four anchors of our community. The first one's formation. We're talking about living the way of Jesus, that we have an intentional formation process. We want you to become like Jesus. The more you become like Jesus, the more you become like your true self. So formation. The second thing is mission. We are a missional church. We, are, we exist for God's purposes of renewing the cosmos, that God will bring unity to all things, reconciliation to all things, restoration and renewal to all things. And the Greek word for all things is everything, basically. So um, that's why we're here. We exist for the why, and it's God's purposes that we exist. So that was last week. Today, we're going to talk about presence. Now, we're talking about living empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're talking about being a community marked by the presence of God. We're talking about being disciples on mission who live naturally supernatural lives. We have done series after series to get you to understand that you have access to the same spirit that Jesus was filled with, that there's no JV Holy Spirit. There's no mini Holy Spirit. When you come into faith, you receive the presence of God with you. And we want to be a church that is marked by the presence of God. But I want to frame today with two texts. Exodus 17, which is great. One of our intercessors texted me while we were in worship, the actual text that we're going to talk about today. So I'm like, ah, she said this thing. I'm like, ha, I'm teaching this text today. Um, And so one of them is Exodus 17, the other one's Mark chapter 9. And I'm just going to frame this as vision text for you as gardeners, that this is who we want to become. We want to be a house of prayer. So we want to be a place where the presence of God dwells. We want our lives to be naturally supernatural, operating in the things of the Holy Spirit. But we collectively as a church need to get some things right. So we need to focus on prayer. And I just need to say that this church, Garden Church, is here because of a prayer moment. How many of you know that there are intentional moments God brings into your life that produce movements in a lifetime? That these random one-off events, moments, could, can produce the kind of uh, catalytic environment that produces life-transforming movements in your life. I was 22 years old. I've shared this story 100,000 times. I didn't grow up believing in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I came to a theological understanding about the things of the Spirit, but was never a part of a community that believed the Holy Spirit would do things today. If there was a sick person, usually it was a, a, a diagnosis that would lead in death to death and it would be really bad. And at the time that the person would almost die, they'd bring that person to church and the elders would come and anoint them with oil. But there wasn't a context for all of the gifts of the spirit to be available for all of the church. The only context I had for that is this church. It's the only community I've, I've participated in. I've been to other churches now and I've seen it, but this is the only environment where we, we uh, have produced that kind of community. And it happened because I was in London at a church planted by Holy Trinity Brompton that experienced a revival and renewal because of the Vineyard Church in the 80s and 90s. And there were prayer moments that broke out in the church, the Anglican church in the UK. And 20-something years later, 
a 22-year-old kid from Orange County who grew up by Anaheim Vineyard, by the way, but never went there because they were charismatic. They believed in the Spirit, and I was warned against it. Um, some pastor prayed for me in a basement of a church, in a church basement. And I encountered the living God in a very intimate way. It was an undoing of things. It was a, uh, a baptism. It was a filling. It was a, uh, an encounter that produced this curiosity and hunger for more. And that led to a church plant. And that led to us being here. That, that leads to why we call people forward to get prayer. Because I know that for some of you, there will be moments where everything is changed because of prayer. So how do we create an ongoing culture? If you have a Bible, go to Exodus 17. So in the story of Exodus is the story of God's people being freed by Moses through the power of God from Egypt, uh, from Pharaoh, who was a military superpower. Um, and he, um, he had oppressed the, uh, the Israelites for 400 years. God hears their cries, sees their suffering, sends Moses, and Moses frees them with the power of God. And we, we come, we, the, the, sea, the Red Sea's parted, and then um, they, they, they celebrate their, their liberation, and then they, they start complaining as the people of God immediately. Um, so they see the miraculous and then they complain. They see the miraculous and then they complain. They don't have food, so God gives them quails and eventually he's gonna give them manna. But there's this moment where this wandering tribe, the Israelites, some say 200, some say a couple million people uh, are wandering. And it says in verse 17, this, this crisis moment appears. Now they, they were trained in the art of making bricks. No military power or training in their history up until this point. Verse eight, it says this, the Amalekites, which was a nomad conquest military tribe known for their skills in military and conquest came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men to go out and fight the Amalekites. To, so just, I mean, you got a bunch of ex-slaves good at making bricks. And Moses, this spiritual leader says, Joshua, choose some guys who can fight. All right, so what do you think that process looked like? Like height, age, like can you hold a club? Like what, I mean, I just want you to think about this. Like they're not trained in battle. They're trained as slaves to make bricks, All right. And Moses is like, all right, Joshua, go get some fighting men. I'm, Google what it means to fight. I, at this point, they don't have the skill. And, and then I love it. And, and Moses is like, you go fight these warrior tribesmen. I'm going to go to the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, they have seen the staff of God become a snake. They've seen the staff of God, staff of God, excuse me, touch the water and it become blood. They've seen it touch the water and part the Red Sea. And so this is what happens. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Ah, no, ah, no, ah, no, ah, no. Like just how, 
When Moses' hands grew tired, they took stones, a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. So he's going to sit down. Aaron and her stood on both sides um, and held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Um, This text is so rich for so many reasons, but we're talking about in context for prayer becoming a church anchored in the presence of God, becoming a church who will um, be marked by a particular kind of prayer. Um, the story begins with a uh, with battle, crisis, conflict issues that are massive issues. If, if you could just imagine the kind of premier war tribe trained in horse battles, coming to attack this hungry, wandering ex-slave community, they are against a kind of opposition that is overwhelming. The solution is to go and fight these guys with whatever they have, right? It's like when, when, when uh, Gideon, the mighty warrior in Judges, is told to go and fight the tribe the Midianites, in the strength he has, right? Where he just says he's the least in his uh, clan and the least clan in all of the clans. And, And God meets him and says, mighty warrior, go in the strength you have. Moses, go with the staff you have. I will be with you. And so the Israelites, the solution is to go and fight with what little they have. It says at the end that Joshua defeats the Amalekites with the sword, but victory is not in Joshua's hands. It's in Moses's hands. Some of us are going to fight, but the victory is going to happen somewhere else. Are you with me? See, this is a story that's unique to Exodus. Up until this point, all of the plagues that came about were God doing something on behalf of the Israelites, except for the last one, Passover, where they have to now take a lamb, sacrifice it, put the blood on the door so the angel of death comes and passes over their home. It was the first time the Israelites had to participate in the miracle. In the story right before this, Moses touches a rock and water comes out of the rock. In this story, some Something else is going on. The people have to fight for the promised land that's coming. Also in Joshua, God gives them the promised land, but every inch of the promised land they have to battle for. Are you with me? So they're going to go in battle, but at the same time, there's something else going on. Moses is partnering with God on behalf of the battle that the people are fighting. It introduces this idea of prayer as intercession. Now pay attention and lean in. This is so important to get because we need to become experts in various kinds of prayer. This particular one has Moses' hands and holding the staff 
as a symbol of obedience to what God said, as a reliance, a total reliance on God's power being demonstrated through partnership with God in the task he's called the Israelites to. Joshua fights the battle, but victory is Moses with his hands up. Moses introduces to the people of God an idea of partnering with God in the work God has for us. It's just, we are given an invitation that our lives are to be like this in every area of our life that we are called to be like Moses on the mountain in our workplaces, at Netflix, at the school, at Cal State Long Beach, in your, in your home with your children, if you're homeschooling your kids like my wife does. There's a lot of this going on, if you know what I mean. Come, Lord Jesus, help us quick. <laughs> as the CEO of the company, as the graphic designer in the other company, as the business consultant, as the consultant as the barista, we are to be with God in partnership. So point number one I want to make is prayer is partnership. You know, you get to, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. He says, pray, um, our, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to partner with God in praying his desires and dreams his way of life, the kingdom, his way of life, if he was in charge, to be reality wherever we are. The implication that Jesus gives his disciples is there are places on earth where God's kingdom is not fully established yet. Does that make sense? What do I mean by that? I mean, there are places where people are still starving, that people are, are living as slaves or trafficked. There are places where there's need and God's desire for humanity is shalom. So wherever shalom is not yet fully realized, we partner with God in our intercessory prayer to say, God, your dream is this heaven on earth reality. Come Lord, quick. So I can pray over my wife as she's literally this morning in agony. We've been here before three other times. Lord, I could be with my son who can't breathe at Chalk Hospital. Your kingdom, this is not your will. I know that, but you're good. And I know that even in sickness, eventually health will come, if not here in the age to come. I believe that. Prayer is partnership. Prayer is dependence. Prayer creates total dependence on God, a total reliance when we pray uh, with God and we lean in. And the other thing that I want to say about this story is prayer activates God's hands, right? So I'm being obedient, right? Playfully, I like, it's an illustration, but like as we think about being obedient to the commands of Jesus, to pray Jesus' prayers is activating God's hand in a situation. It's, it's not forcing him to do something because he's sovereign. How many of you know the difference? Like, I'm not saying by, you know, you praying this prayer, the solution is going to be your dream outcome. But what I am saying is being obedient to pray with God in the things he desires. We create a culture of dependence, not a culture of proficiency. 
oftentimes we hold our hands up in crisis, but we don't hold them up when everything's going well. Anyone want to say amen to that? So Joshua is fighting the battle and Moses gets tired and it teaches us something about prayer, which the primary um, instruction for prayer by Jesus comes from Luke chapter 11 and it's all over the place. But this is the, if I could give you one thing that Jesus teaches, it's this idea that prayer requires perseverance. So Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. And then he goes and he, he frames this to our image and narrative of who God is. He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give gifts to your children, good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So he ties the, the, the answer to your prayer, the asking, the seeking, the knocking, the outcome that you desire will eventually be received because God is a good father. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. When circumstances don't align to our desires or will. I have so much to teach on with this <laughs> based on my experience. And it, but so we learn that we, so what do we do in crisis? What do we do in success? We partner with God in intercessory prayer. We keep our hands up. We keep going to him in prayer for that breakthrough. We step and align our hearts and our minds and our, our lives to this principle. And I was just thinking, I wanted to ask you, who will continue to ask, seek, and knock for the kids of Garden Church? Who's going to ask, seek, and knock for the marriages of Garden Church? Who's going to ask, seek, and knock for the single people in our community? Who's going to ask, seek, and knock for the lost of Long Beach? Who's going to ask, seek, and knock for the homeless crisis? I don't want to hear you complain about it. I want to see you hold your hands up about it. Christians, I'm done with the political stuff. We got to kill it. The, two, the next two years are going to be brutal in our culture and society. If I hear another conflict on Instagram, Facebook, because we're death by association. Somebody believes this about vaccine. Whatever it is in the church, I'm going to lose my mind. Be more resilient in that. It's like when, it kind of reminds me when Paul's talking to Corinthians and he says, don't you know you're going to judge angels? It's like, lift your heads. This stuff going on, there's something behind it. Pay attention to what's behind it. You're like, wait, we're going to judge angels? Yes. And I had this like, can I say this here? I, okay, someone's going to take this and they're going to like use it on YouTube to make something about something about me that I don't believe. But I'm just going to tell you a fantasy I have, okay? All right, this is what I think is going to happen. Check this out. All right, so think of like, you know, those detective shows, right? It's like you, you have the, the angel handcuffed, the demon handcuffed, you know, in the room. And then they're like, we're on the outside on the wall looking in. And, and then someone goes, that's the angel that had sickness on your family. That was, that was the angel that was making Ezra not breathe at Chalk Hospital. I'm just saying, this is my fantasy. Don't take it as theology. Some of you are going to leave our church because it's not biblical. Okay, whatever. 
just lean in, okay? I, this is my imaginative fantasy. And I'm going to go, that's the guy? And they're like, that's the guy. I'm like, shut the recording off. Shut the lights off. Light goes dark. Let me in there. Ah! Ah! No, that's not. That's not. We're going to have compassion, I'm sure. And the blood of Jesus will cover all of that. Prayer is the most important matter, Watchman Nee says, the most important matter. Um, I have a question. When does, the, when does prayer stop in churches? When there's success. So prayer moves us to dependence upon God and we posture ourselves in a way that requires God to show up. Look, I know it's 11.25 and most of you are used to churches that go an hour and a half, but we don't do that here. So we go a little longer and I have, I have a, another story I want to share that frames it. And this is the one I want to get to because I feel like this is what I'm supposed to preach on Mark chapter nine. If you have a Bible, go to Mark chapter nine. I'm going to summarize this text. Go there because I think this is a passage I actually believe is symbolic to what's happening in culture. I think it's I'm on like a macro level. This story frames something about what we're sensing in society, culture, in the church, and it gives us potentially a solution to how to move forward, all right? If you lean in, I want to just preach from this text. Mark 9, um, it says this. Oh, let me just frame it. So Mark has this epic moment where in Mark, the beginning of chapter 9, uh, right before in chapter eight, uh, Peter says, you are the Messiah. And so the revelation of who Jesus is, he's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's the savior. And, and Jesus says, yes, to, to Peter, basically. This has been given to you through revelation. And then a couple moments later, uh, a couple of the disciples and Jesus are on a mountain alone. And it's called the transfiguration where they see Jesus transformed in this like angelic-like heavenly perspective. And the disciples like, oh my gosh, they see Elijah and Moses. And they're like, what? It's what's going on. They hear the voice of the father say, this is my son. Listen to him. So the, this is like, oh my gosh, if you have a mountaintop experience, you want to know what a mountaintop experience encounter like? This is that experience, okay? Mountaintop encounter with God followed by something we can all relate to. So verse nine, I'm uh, sorry, verse 14, it says, uh, they, they come down, it says, they come down from the mountainside. It says, when they came to the other disciples, so mountaintop experience, this is the son of God, listen to him. So the other disciples are coming down. It says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around the other disciples and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Mountaintop experience, met with arguments, met with conflict, confusion, chaos, ordinary life all of a sudden bumps into your mountaintop holy moment with God. And now you got to feed the kids and they're not listening to you. They're not napping. And all of the ordinariness comes back. Throw on top of that religious arguments. Let's just do, uh, let's do like modern layers, like a viral argument on social media. We'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about uh, politically loaded language that are triggering people. There's this crisis moment. They're arguing. The religious leaders are arguing with the disciples. And Jesus comes down and look at the observation that's made. As soon as the other people saw Jesus, 
They were overwhelmed, or the word is excited with wonder. Mountaintop experience, they see Jesus, they're excited. And it says that they ran to greet him. And so this massive, large crowd fighting with the disciples come to Jesus. And Jesus is concerned about the chaos. He's concerned about what's happening in that moment. It says, he says, what are you arguing with them about? He's talking to his disciples. And then the disciples don't answer this, but a random dude responds. It says that in the Greek, a random dude. Um, it doesn't. It does not say that. It says, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, listen to this. I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit and has robbed him of speech. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. All right. Now, can we just, this moment. So there's all, you could just imagine the disciples were given the authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to preach the good news, to raise the dead. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, they're given that in Luke's Gospel, in John's Gospel, in Matthew's Gospel. They have the ability, power, and authority from Jesus to do what Jesus did. And this father, in desperation, you, if you read this as a, as a parent, imagine the desperation of this parent who hasn't seen the child get healed of this condition. And if you're like a good parent, you do everything you possibly can to make it better for your suffering kid. So in hopes to heal his boy, he goes to his disciples and they can't do it. The father's probably exasperated. Like you're healing all these people. These guys, they can't do it. So then the religious leaders, folk, they step in. They finally, they got their moment. You know, they're arguing about it with the disciples. And Jesus, knowing arguments are going on, knowing his disciples couldn't do what he called and commanded them to do, knowing the issue based on the compassion he might have for the father, doesn't speak to the disciples, doesn't speak to the religious leaders, doesn't speak to the son or the father, he says, you unbelieving generation. There is a systemic, generational, structural issue going on that's bigger than your personal issues. There's something bigger going on. And it's connected to the lack of faith but there's something else happening in the world beyond the individual things that are happening in front of Jesus. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? And then he says, bring the boy to me. So they brought him. Uh, so they brought him. Went, listen to this. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. So an evil spirit had possessed this boy or uh, oppressed him to the point where it took uh, over his body and functions. We've seen this before. This is not some, just, a, an, you know, a movie experience. Most demonic, uh, most demonic activity is not possession. Those are rare, but they are still happening. 
And if you read the gospel of Mark, almost his entire, Jesus's entire ministry can be summed up in two things, preaching the gospel and delivering people of evil spirits. That's how Mark talks about the ministry of Jesus. So this is a big deal. It happens all the time. The demon begins to manifest. And then looking at this experience, it's, I just, I imagine Jesus totally calm. And then he just talks to the father. Hey, how long has this been going on? From childhood. So now it's a, a condition that's been anchored in the boy's life for years, right? And it says, and then he goes on, he says, it, often th- uh, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. Demons want to kill and destroy. They want to seed your life with lies and beliefs that are false so they can destroy the life Jesus comes to bring. And when you speak lies out that he's speaking to, you're, you're being used as a tool. You're being played as an instrument by the devil. So we take our thoughts captive. We take our words captive in our homes so that we don't partner with the enemy in his work. We resist the enemy and partner with God in his work. Are you with me? We're trying to talk about prayer. I'll get there. Don't worry. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus' response. I don't think it's a rebuke. I think of it as gentleness. I think, it as, I think of it in context of unbelieving generation that he's seeing the religious leaders debate, the powerlessness of his disciples and this unbelieving generation. He's realizing like, if you can, if you can, Jesus is, is, is the reaction of the spirit is to manifest. And the father's like, if you can do anything, I, look, I've tried everything else. And he's hopeless. He's in despair. We live in a society filled with despair that we believe with a shadow of a doubt, without a shadow of a doubt, that things will always be this way. That's what we, that's what the next generation is being taught. That there are so, there's such powerful algorithms and AI and systems out there that we can't possibly make a difference. And Jesus says, if you can, you've been conditioned to question. And he says, everything is possible for one who believes. Everything is possible for one who believes. Oh, such a good, we should put that on like those cards when people are sick, you know, like just praying for you, everything's possible. The Christian cliche line, right? This is what Jesus says. Everything is possible for one who believes. Now, the father's response, by the way, the, the word belief is the same Greek word for where we get the word hope and faith. Everything is possible for the one who has hope. Everything is possible for the one who has faith. And the father simply says, well, I think any of us would say, hey, I, I, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief. I, 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 as a father, I've watched my son suffer with sickness. I've watched my wife as I helplessly can't do anything. I have been a part of situations where the diagnosis is so severe, multiple medications are needed, and you can't help but have unbelief in those situations where, yes, I know everything's possible, but at this moment, right, with all the beeping things going on in the hospital, with what you're saying about brain damage and all these things, I can't help but live in unbelief. I have belief. It's over there somewhere, but I'm living here in reality. Some of you are there right now and just getting here is hard enough. 
And Jesus says, we live in this dynamic where we can see miracles happen every day and we still do memorial services for the people we pray for. That is the reality of the kingdom come and not yet here reality. And now and not yet. So we have to learn to live in this tension. I want to confess something to you. 2021 and 2022 has been really hard. Anyone want to say yes to that? So personally, I was just taking inventory and I was just thinking about what happens to us when the circumstances of life, when the realities of conditions are what we focus on, right? What happens when this unbelieving generation, these systems and powers and, and, and this mindset of despair becomes our focus. I want to tell you what happened to me. So 2021, 2022, this is just short list. There's, it's a lot longer, but it was filled with so much conflict. I mean, if you could imagine, and there's some pastors in the room, all of my pastor friends are coming out of what would be a PTSD season of leading a church through 2020 and 2021. And this is just a, me telling you, and loads of conflict. And I, I, I mean this, like the amount of conflict we've had to endure because of your preference of masks or no masks, vaccines, no vaccines, right or left jargon being heard in a sermon, the amount of sit-down meetings I've had to have to express my political beliefs about things because that matters the most to you. I'm not saying you, I'm just saying, but the, imagine just the conflict. I lost so many friends in this church because of politics. I, I had people in this church gossip and slander about my wife and I, and not just do that with people and leaders in our community, systematically going to them in communities, but build platforms online to denounce things about me that are so false. The allegations are so beyond anything that's true but I've had to sit and endure. And my wife's like, say something. I'm like, no, because that's not how we fight in the kingdom. You just absorb the pain that people have. But after one hit after another, the circumstances pile up, not to mention medical bills, not to mention our own fears of COVID with lung issues and compromised immunity, not to mention our own views of what's happening in the world, the stress of leading when we come back, our church is 40 per 60, uh, 50 to 60% what it was. And everyone has a strong opinion. I'm getting email left and right because uh, uh, something I quoted sounds like an opposition to this political abuse. Something, somebody wants to pray in tongues and someone's upset about that. Someone's upset because we're not, it's like this moment is a mob mentality in culture and we bring it into this church. And I'm doing the best that I can. This isn't an excuse. I'm just giving you my insight. Plus homeschooling, navigating starting the year with $300,000 deficit in our church, which by the way, we ended with a surplus. That's crazy. I didn't believe that. <clears throat> I didn't believe it because every text and email I got from somebody was, was a bit of anxiety because I thought it was another thing that I had to deal with conflict. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've not been in that situation. Pastors here are like, oh my gosh, you're reading my mail. Why do I say this? Well, that junk, not all that stuff is underneath the surface. 
And if you don't go underneath the surface, you know what happens? All those circumstances pile up and that's all you tend to see. Stay with me for a moment. When that's all you see, you build an ecosystem in your life. And if you're a leader of any type of organization, that ecosystem you build in your life becomes an ecosystem you can build in the community. So in this case, a church, where the focus on um, what's going on out there creates fear. And fear is the result of misplaced trust. So what did I do? All I could see, I got to run faster. I got to work harder. I got to preach more. I got to meet with more people. I got to, I got to talk about the deficit. I got to, I got to do everything I can because I am in charge and I got to control this life because fear creates a culture of control. As love creates a culture of freedom, fear creates a culture of control. So when I have this misplaced trust, I rely on myself. Faith is connected to the word belief, and it's translated belief, hope, confidence. It should say um, reliance and trust, not resistance. (laughs) (laughs) There is resistance, and we're naming it reliance. So fear is a result of misplaced trust, and that word trust Um, is connected to belief. So anything, everything is possible for those who have trust in God. Everything is possible for those who have faith in God. Those of you who've stopped looking at circumstances and have aligned yourself to God himself. I'm gonna close in just a second. I know it's getting late, but I need to say these things. So if you need to go, you can go. Frederick Del Bruner says this. He's a New Testament scholar who's taken, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, he translates the word belief and he says, uh, a, a good modern translation for belief is trust. So a good modern translation of trusting in or believing in is actually relaxing in. So listen, everything is possible for those who have relaxed in Jesus. Everything is possible for those who have learned to relax in Jesus. Let me, let me just close um, with some of this. <clears throat> Jesus invites his disciples to learn from him. And in John's gospel, the entire book of John is to believe in the one who sent him, right? That's the whole purpose of the book is to believe in Jesus and the Father. And that word belief is trust, faith, hope. Relax in Jesus. You see, faith moves us from self to God. That's the easiest way I can communicate what I'm getting at is when Jesus trying to get us to step into faith, everything is possible for those who have faith, those who relax. Faith is the ability to see God through the circumstances, not to deny the circumstances and the crisis, but to actually align yourself to what is ultimately true. So faith is not some uh, static, still intellectual concept. Faith is dynamic. It's active. It's sitting. It's resting. It's relaxing. It's walking. It's standing. It's growing. It's living into what you've come to know is true. So in some situations, you need to align your money 
to the things you believe about God because you're living with scarcity as the circumstance. Sometimes when the, the circumstance is so overwhelming, you need people to come around you and pray what you couldn't pray because their faith is going to be rubbing off on you. Just like the man who was paralyzed and the four faithful friends bring him to Jesus. In this situation, it's a father who is a mixed bag. I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. In the midst of this dynamic of oppositions and, and, and ultimate realities, I want him to see him. He still brought him to Jesus. He knew intrinsically it was worth getting to the presence of God. God's presence is the birthplace of faith. This is why we have to be a church where God's presence rests. This has to be a church that honors his presence. Last week, I don't know if you saw this, if you were here, we worshiped for like 40 minutes and right at the end. So I want you to see it. I want you to be trained to know the difference between a good worship set and then the presence of God arriving. Look, I know he's always here theologically. Yes, he's always with us, 100%. But then there are these moments where you can't, it's not the worship. It's not the song. Something else is in the room. And we don't have language to de describe that. In Acts chapter two, they're like, hey man, there was a violent wind, there was an earthquake, there was like fire tongues. Tongues of fire? Yeah, tongues that rested on everyone and we spoke in different languages. It was crazy. Like when you describe those moments that produce movements, by the way, you honor those moments because you honor his presence. Have you learned to get yourself when you are struggling with belief and unbelief to get into the presence. I went to a chapel at Forest Home when my son broke his arm and they're saying he needed surgery. I was watching Amos and I didn't know what to do. I'm like, Zach, take Amos. I'm just gonna go. I got to this chapel and it says holy ground. And I literally step on, I take my shoes off and I fall to my knees and I just weep. I just wept. I couldn't be with my son. I wanted to be there. He might need surgery. I don't know what's going on. He has a concussion, needs all this stuff. I'm like, my tears will be enough for the Lord. I knew I didn't need to be around texting, Googling all the things they're sending me, WebMDing. Do anyone know what I'm talking about? What I needed is to be with Jesus. And I, I literally didn't want to. I was like, gosh darn, I'm going to go to this chapel. I don't freak. And then I got there. And it was holy. Oh, man, this sermon should get it in part two. No, I'll just finish. Let me just finish. So Jesus, let me just finish with this. Jesus says this. So when Jesus saw the crowd running towards him, he rebuked the spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed violently, and it came out. The boy looked at, like a corpse. He looked dead. He's dead, they said, but Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, listen to this, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we do what you said to do? This kind can only come out by prayer. Now, lean in, listen. Other passages, other translations will say prayer and fasting, OK? 
okay? But the original text that we have in Greek never has the word fasting, even in the other translations, okay? Fasting was added a few hundred years later as something else. And you can, re- you can probably guess why. Look, fasting, uh, uh, we, we, we give up things so we can focus on God. So the level of intensity of our prayers increase. So we see what happens when we fast. There is a power that comes upon us because of our intentionality. But I need to say this, that the Holy Spirit is not a force to be wielded, but a person to be enjoyed and experienced. Prayer is stepping into the presence of God. Mark Sayer says, prayer is centering your life in his presence. Jesus is saying to his disciples that there's a level of authority and power that will flow, not because you've done spiritual disciplines and practices, but because you've lived a life of intimacy and union with Christ. And only when you're dependent on the flow of power from heaven in union with Christ, will you be able to deliver this kind of demonic opposition. And we are in a moment of time where culture has a type of demonic power that is waging war on people and the church is the only solution. Self-help won't make it. Yoga practice, juice, fast, keto won't help you. Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit will save you today. And we need to get our act together. And what do I mean? Oh, start doing disciplines. No, realign your life to Jesus. Of course, spiritual disciplines. Get back to intimacy, first love stuff. Get back into the flow of heaven. Realign your life. Uh, Brother Lauren says that all things are possible to him who believes, that they are less difficult to him who hopes. They are more easy to him who loves and still more easy to him who perseveres in the practice of these three virtues. Henry Nouwen says the only way to pray is to pray. And the way to pray well is to pray much. So if we're going to grow in this thing, get into his presence and pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.